Welcome to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. I'm Patty Vest. And I'm Mark Wood. In these extraordinary times, we're coming to you from our various homes as we all shelter in place. This season on SageCast, we're talking to Pomona faculty and alumni about the personal, professional, and intellectual journeys that have brought them to where they are today. Today, we're talking with Pierre Engelberg, the H. Russell Smith Professor of International Relations and Professor of Politics at Pomona College. Pierre has spent more than 30 years studying African politics and development with a focus on Francophone West and Central Africa. Welcome, Pierre. It's good to Thank have you. you with us. It's good to see you, to even if it is in cyberspace. <laughs> Same here. <laughs> so how have you adjusted to life in the time of COVID-19? You know, like everybody else, uh, uh, some struggles, but there's also some silver lining. It's nice to have the kids back at home and, and we all spend a lot of time together. And, um, you know, there's, there's some, uh, some blessings hidden in there. So we're making the best of it. Pierre, you were born and educated in Belgium. Tell us about your early years and what were you like as a child? <laughs> oh my goodness! I was born there. I was partly educated there, and uh, uh, I, I went. I did my undergrad degree at the University of Brussels, and then I moved to the U.S. Um, yeah, I grew up in Brussels, um, and one of uh, a family of four boys. I was number two, um, and I, I went to this. Um, uh, Catholic school for like 12 years, uh, um, nonstop from first grade to 12th grade, and uh, was fairly um, traditional education. I studied Latin and Greek and um, taught by priests and really the old uh, uh, Catholic European model uh, from which I fully recovered. I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> it's an ongoing process. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and then I went. Yeah, then uh, after graduating from high school uh, in 1980, I went to University of Brussels, where I studied uh, uh, political science and international relations. Um, and then at the end of that, uh, I applied uh, to go to a master's degree uh, at Johns Hopkins, and that's how I got into the U.S. So how how did you first get interested in in Africa? Um, did that happen in college, or was it something that happened along the way? It really mostly happened in college, although I have to say there was a, a little seed was planted by my aunt. I have an aunt who lived in Paris and um, had a shelter for immigrant women. And, um, and we would we'd visit it often. And, um, and she had, a, you know, she did some programs whereby they would get on the bus and then they, they would visit also in Belgium and they would place, uh, she would place these women with families for weekends or weeks and then we always hosted some. And, and you know, this way I kind of, at, at an earlier age, I got in touch with um, what, you, what we call the third world of people coming from uh, um, from Africa and, and from other regions outside of Europe. Um, and I think that her her vocation there, her dedication to that um, gave me a curiosity, let's say, about, about, uh, about th those regions. Uh, but then mostly when I was at the University of Brussels, um, there were a lot of African students. You know, Belgium as a, as a colonial past uh, uh, and, and um, there were lots of Congolese students at the University of Brussels, some other Africans, and um, I befriended a few of them. And, and I, you know, I, I became very interested in the, the contrast uh, between what they were talking about and what we were living in Europe. So at the time in the early 80s, 
it was an exciting time in Europe. European uh, integration was really moving forward uh, at, a, at a faster pace than before. Um, there was a strong connection between France and Germany, and there was a sense that, you know, my goodness, we we are all Europeans here, and we are we might be, you know, uh, finally um, uh, moving beyond the divisions of of the century and the wars, and and creating some new a new state, really, when you think about it. So, as a political scientist, I was very excited by these things. But my my friends from Africa were talking about things that were so much more fundamental in some ways about you know politics being a matter of life and death, about basic freedoms, about about um, you know corruption, things that um, of course existed also in Europe, but were so much more salient in Africa or, or such a bigger part of their experience that I became curious about that contrast. Um, and so, you know, at first it was mostly at, at an informal level. I did not really uh, uh, explore that uh, intellectually, but I, I became aware of it. And then as a junior, I had a class um, with uh, Professor Paul Bouvier on African politics. And that was one of those epiphanies, you know, she, she was fantastic. And um, I, I think I was kind of ready because of these conversations with my African friends. And suddenly she was offering a theoretical analytical lens uh, from which to make sense uh, of, of some of these features. And, and I became so curious um, by how different uh, uh, Africa was and how, how much more fundamental to life politics was. And, and I kind of disconnected from this European thing, which became much more boring to me. It's like, ah, you know, a big deal, like, you know, standardization of <laughs> rules across European countries. My goodness, that is tedious. Um, and so, and so, you know, that, that kind of uh, developed that interest. Still, it was at a fairly theoretical level. Um, and then this is kind of a weird part of the story, but it's really the crucial one. I really, I had a, I had a band in those days. And so I was doing uh, politics as a major really so that I would have some some backup and, and to please my parents. But my goal was definitely uh, to be a rock star and, um, and <laughs> to, at least, to at least go on in life uh, with music. And I had a band and we were performing and most weekends we gave little gigs here and there. Um, but when I was a junior, the band broke up and it was a very traumatic uh, thing for me. <laughs> and um, I got bitter and, and you know, I kind of... Um, when the band fell apart after, you know, I mean, I had done this since high school and we had, had several bands, but this was one that I had hoped hoped for. Um, I kind of um, responded by by rejecting all of it. And I went and sold my guitar and my amplifier. And, and I, you know, I, I got enough money then uh, to, to buy a ticket to a Provolta. I'm like, okay, I'm done with this. What's the most <laughs> radically different I can do now? How can I run away from all this, this uh, agony with the band? And I found a ticket to Ouagadougou and it, it came perfectly at the time because I had just had that class. And so I was kind of, you know, developing that, that new interest. And it was sitting there waiting to be activated, if you will. And this music uh, uh, downturn led me to uh, explore that. And so in the, in the summer of uh, 1983, I found myself on the plane to Ouagadougou, a uh, uh, Volta, which no longer exists as a Volta. It's now called Burkina Faso. It was renamed the following year. Um, and when I got there, it was that same month, a few weeks earlier, there had been a coup. This, this, some, some young uh, captains had taken over power and had declared a revolution with support from Gaddafi from Libya. I mean, so there I am, a 20-year-old, and I arrive in this uh, West African country. 
which is as different from Belgium as you can imagine. And they're starting a revolution. And like, like, wow, this is incredible and it's fascinating and power to the people. And, you know, I attended meetings and I went to revolutionary defense committees and I spent two months uh, um, in that country traveling around. I went to Cote d'Ivoire also in Togo and I stayed with uh, local families and, um, you know, it, it, it transformed me. I came back and I was like, whoa, there's, there's another world out there. It's fascinating. There are people struggling with really fundamental issues. I was, I, I must tell you, I was... Um, stunned by poverty. Uh, poverty really uh, was hard for me to deal with. I had not been exposed to that kind of, of poverty and uh, deprivation. Uh, Pavolta uh, uh, remains, but was there then already uh, one of the poorest countries on earth uh, with, you know, the capita income of a few hundred dollars a year. I mean, and you can really see what it means in terms of, of people's lives and quality of lives and, and hardship. Um, and, you know, now there's often a criticism of this whole... Um, and it's a it's a legitimate one, you know, this whole uh, uh, white savior approach to to African poverty and all that. But but when you first confronted with it, uh, especially as a as a young man still um, developing kind of uh, intellectually, it's hard not to be um, shaken by that and not to come back thinking like, you know, we share humanity with these people. How can we how can we help? How can we do something? You know, and and, and you feel like a certain calling that that you cannot exist comfortably in your world once you become aware of what's out there. And, um, and so I, st I, I started studying African politics. I wrote my senior thesis on that country and, um, and on the revolution. And, um, and one thing led to another, and, and here I am. Do you still play guitar? <laughs> I still do. I play, I, you know what, and the, the, uh, the, I don't know if it's the irony, but the, I've come full circle. I have a band again. It's just me. I have a one-man <laughs> one band. But of the, the, over the last few years, I've been uh, um, I've got back into it, and I've been recording and composing. And um, and um, yeah, so now you know, thank God for tenure, um, I've, been, <laughs> I've been able to reindulge with my my first love. <laughs> yeah, so I'm on Spotify. You can go and find everything. <laughs> But still, Africa remains yeah. my first uh, my first interest. Now. So um, I, I know you're not the kind of scholar who spends all of his time in libraries. You you've spent a lot of time on the ground in in Africa. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your more recent travels there and um, how you do your research? Yeah. Um, you know, it's been, I mean, for, like everybody else, right? it's been tough this year. I was supposed to be in Niger last month and I was supposed to be in Congo uh, in May. Usually as soon as classes end, I'm, I'm off to Africa. Uh, summer, you know, we, it's good that we have a big chunk of time and, and it's hard to do um, uh, serious field work in a very short amount of time. So whenever I can have a few weeks, uh, I, I, I go. And so now I have not gone back to Africa since last December when I was in Congo. But um, mostly I work on two big projects these days. Uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo is certainly the country that I work on the most. And I'm, I've recently finished the fieldwork for a large project that looks at Congo's uh, decentralization and, and the provinces and try to explain variations in how provinces uh, do in terms of governance and things like that. So I've traveled through the country. Uh, there are 26 provinces, and I've done nine of them. Um, 
and essentially you know, interviewing uh, uh, provincial authorities, local elites, but also civil society members, academics, um, uh, people who are part of a sociocultural association and stuff like that. So it's been a fairly qualitative research project with a lot of interviews, but also I collect data, budget data, um, um, like, you know, the data on the, um, I, for example, I compare the performance of provincial assemblies. So identify how many decrees they have adopted, uh, whether they passed the budget, whether it was on time, with what kind of delay, uh, the number of taxes that they have approved, and, uh, and the, the ratio of you know tax collection over expectations. So stuff like that, which you know I collect from the, the raw material, and then uh, I create uh, indicators from that of, of a provincial capacity. Um, but it's a mix of qualitative and quantitative methods, which is true in general of my research. Now, what I do, because I'm based here in, in California, and you know, I have a family, and I'm not really at liberty to be gone for 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 years on end. Um, I I work with Congolese or African colleagues often, so I I, I establish teams, and then we work together, and then it becomes collective uh, uh, collective projects. So in this case, I have an, a team at the University of Lubumbashi in Katanga, and that's kind of the uh, those are the co co uh, investigators with me, and then. Uh, we get together and then we we travel together, but then also when I'm not there, they continue to keep the project alive and, and continue interviews and data collection. Uh, uh, so we have a book coming out now later this year. Uh, it's in French, but still um, on on Congo's uh, decentralization policies. Uh, and then a, a few articles are, are coming out in English from this project. And then I have another big project, which is... Um, about security and looking at how African states respond to security threats. And this one compares countries in the Horn of Africa, mostly Ethiopia and Kenya, with countries in the region we call the Sahel, which is the West African region between the Gulf of Guinea and the Sahara. And mostly I'm looking at Mali, Burkina, and Niger. And if you look at these countries, they've all become, uh, uh, they've all come under significant terrorist threats and attacks. And some of them, uh, for example, in the Horn, Ethiopia has responded very forcefully and has taken ownership of its security. Uh, Kenya, on the other hand, is much more delegating to outside actors like the US, etc. Same thing in, the, in, in, in the, the Sahel. You see Mali is completely surrendering its security to the French and the UN. It's like, okay, you know, you take care of this and we do business as usual in Bamako. And Niger is on the other extreme and Burkina in between. So we're trying to explain with a colleague, uh, Jessica Piombo at the Naval Postgraduate School, we're trying to explain how, where do these variations come from? Why do some countries take their own security more seriously than others? Why are some so eager to delegate to outside actors, often uh, former colonial masters, and others are more uh, awning? Uh, and how does that relate to domestic dimensions of politics? You know, um, issues of patronage, issues of ethnic distribution of power, issues of the political economy of natural resources and stuff like that. So in that case, with Jessica, we do field work, and then it's a lot of interviews. We meet with security people in the, in the state. Uh, we meet with outside actors who train the security forces and, and have different perception of the, the local responses. Uh, again, we meet with uh, civil society actors and, and things like that. So uh, this, this project also has a lot of data, has data on, on government spending, on, on uh, counterterrorism and security and, and outside assistance. Um, but uh, it's also based largely on, uh, on field work and interviews. Um, Pierre, um, as we deal with the pandemic, let's talk a little bit about the pandemic and how that, that affects your work, but also 
the the areas that you that you study. Um, not much attention is being paid here in the U.S. to what COVID is doing in in Africa. Um, how bad is it, or and how bad do you think it may get? That's a good question. Um, I have to preface my answer by saying I've not really studied this closely because I'm like everybody else, a little bit COVID saturated. And so when I do my African politics research, it's like a place where I go and, sh and shelter away from, from the <laughs> around craziness, right? So, but I, of course, I mean, I read uh, and I'm somewhat uh, aware uh, within the continent, it looks like South Africa is most badly hit. And so South Africa really has a serious issue with the virus. Now, some of that might be due to the fact that South Africa has better data uh, and a lot of African countries are not particularly good or capable to produce reliable statistics. And, and you can imagine, you know, this, this pandemic coming on top of many other things, it taxes uh, governance services and, and, and statistical services a lot. So it doesn't look like it's, uh, uh, they just passed like a million cases recently, uh, which is uh, for, for a continent of 1.3 billion people is not, uh, it's not at all at the level of other regions. Um, some people are saying, you know, because Africa is very youthful, you know, the majority uh, in most African, sub-Saharan African countries, the majority of people are under the age of 15, um, that they might be uh, less prone to it or less uh, symptomatic. And so uh, it might have fewer uh, uh, effects. I, it's, it's plausible, I don't know. I also imagine that um, a lot of people do not have access to healthcare, and so it's hard to tell. So if you're in a village and you know some, some traders come by and maybe spread the virus, uh, people get sick and die. And you know you can ask people, hey, what happened to, to Bob? Say, like, well, you know, he got sick and died. And that's kind of the explanation. Uh, and people don't say, oh, you know, he caught this and he was hospitalized and then treated. And so the, you know, the level of deprivation from health service and, and of course, uh, morbidity is fairly high in many low-income African countries and they're exposed to, uh, to other things. You know, people, people die from malaria. There's, there's still cholera uh, recurrently in places like Congo. Um, there's all sorts of uh, infectious uh, disease. And so, you know, life expectancy is, is less than it is here. Um, so my guess is that relative to the existing health issues, COVID is less of a uh, additional tragedy. Uh, but at the same time, um, people lack sufficient access to healthcare, and states lack sufficient knowledge about their population for us to be able to estimate the true impact. And that's kind of a, it's a good representation of how things really work in Africa in general. It's, a, it's at a different level of, um, of um, what we call capabilities in terms of, of public services, you know? Pierre, um, how, how heavily does the legacy of of you know colonialism um, way on Africa today after what about over over half century or you know since most most of the countries gained independence. That's a great question. I I think it's overwhelming. It remains overwhelming, and and not necessarily in the ways that people expect. There's some clear ways. Like you you look at former French colonies and the French just cannot help themselves, but you know, they always meddle in, in, in the politics uh, of their former colonies. And the elites of these former colonies are very attached to their French connection and essentially live in a little parallel world of, of um, you know, uh, co uh, connection, 
with with French elites uh, that they like to reinforce and that give them some some degree of legitimacy in their own world. Um, so that that's one clear case where you know there's like what you can refer to as neo-colonialism. And the exploitation of resources, and, and like in Niger, for example, the one big resource is uranium, and it's owned by a French company and things like that. You know, so you can see that. But there's something more fundamental that's true across the continent: is that Africa's contemporary states, all the countries of Africa except for Ethiopia, which was not colonized, all of them are the outcome of colonization. There's no such thing as Congo. There's no such thing as Mali. There's no such thing as Senegal, or or and go before colonization. These are institutional creations of the colonizer, right? And when the colonizers left, starting you know in the in the late fifties, mostly through the sixties, they left behind that institutional apparatus, right? So the states became independent. But when you think about that, what became independent is not what existed before colonization. It's what colonization created. And so, by and large, it's a transfer of power from European elites to African elites, but it's the same apparatus, it's the same state. Uh, and so to some extent, freedom, uh, independence in Africa happened upon a, a blueprint of alienation, if you will, right? Like you become free, but only if you define yourself along the terms created and imposed by the colonizer. And so you renounce yourself, you negate yourself at the same time, which means you, you push away any kind of political legitimacy that might come from something else than, than colonialism. You have to have gone through these institutions to be a legitimate ruler. If you are a traditional chief, if you're a religious chief, if you are you know, somebody who derives legitimacy from any other source, that, is, that becomes politically marginalized. Right? And I think we don't often appreciate enough how that, that structural inheritance continues to constrain the realm of the, the possible in Africa. And you know, with democrat these states have democratized, they've had some elections, they've decentralized, they've tried many things to kind of better embed the post-colonial states into society. But at the same time, it's never been done in a way that really generates a true social contract where people can come and say, let's talk about this state. Do we want this state? Or do we want to break it down? Or want to merge it with others or something like that? Uh, and so that state that has really a almost a, a DNA that's colonial, that's still a, a top-down, repressive, exploitative, extractive uh, um, um, foundations, it's very hard for that state to become responsive to, to population, to become uh, accountable, to become uh, transparent. And so African states, and you know, there's, there's huge variation here, I'm simplifying, but I'm making an average argument. African states tend to, to be uh, fairly um, dominating and fairly authoritarian, even when they democratize and are not very good at absorbing the demands of their citizens. And I think that's a colonial legacy. The discourse about independence has, uh, has hidden um, because independence did not really question the legacy of colonialism. It just became a, an acquisition of sovereignty uh, upon an existing um, uh, authoritarian extractive background. That's a big theme in my Politics 162 class. <laughs> when are you teaching that next? I may have to audit that. <laughs> uh, please, you're very welcome. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Pierre, similar, uh, kind of along those lines, um, can you give us a primer on the state of African states today? Where are some of the success stories and where are some areas that are still struggling? 
Uh, that's a great question. Uh, because I've been stressing also the difficulties of the continent and, and, and one has to be careful not to fall into this um, uh, Afro-pessimistic view or also about you know, excessive aggregation of Africa as one, as one place. Uh, but it's worth stressing that there are ser serious issues and that they, they tend to be, uh, they, they exist across the continent. So if you look in terms of, um, let's say political regimes, uh, you have uh, an increased number of democracies on the continent. Although there's still the majority of countries are either authoritarian or what we call semi-authoritarian or semi-democracies, countries that have elections, but where well, it's very hard to truly uh, have um, uh, alternation in power, right? But the most successful ones would be, and I'm, I'm going, kind of going geographically here, starting in, uh, in West Africa. So you have Senegal, which has been a democracy for a long time and a fairly successful one with uh, really change of, uh, you know, uh, people in office, uh, incumbents losing elections, uh, things like that and conceding. Um, the Gambia right next door just recently uh, democratized, but it's not clear what a, you know, how, how sustainable that is. Um, uh, Benin has been a, a decent democracy. Um, Nigeria has democratized very significantly compared to where it was in the 1990s when it was really a, a catastrophic uh, dictatorship. But of course, it's still struggling with a lot of issues. But certainly, it's a place with a lot more... Um, expression, freedom of expression, a lot more political uh, initiative, entrepreneurship, dynamics, uh, new development. Uh, it's a very vibrant uh, society. And so even though it might have uh, um, some issues still in terms of um, uh, transparency, accountability, corruption is terrible. Still, it's a, it's a vibrant uh, uh, political system. And you've had also incumbent, uh, incumbents lose elections and you have a, a lot of uh, dynamic political movements. Tremendous cultural uh, effervescence in Nigeria. It's really uh, a great nation in terms of cultural production and that's an important part of, uh, of democratic expression too. Um, and then, you know, you have uh, Kenya has, has done fairly well. It has had some, some serious election problems, but by and large, it, it, has made, it has made significant progress. South Africa remains a strong democracy. Um, there, there's probably, you know, there's some smaller ones, Cape Verde, Sao Tome, that we don't hear as much about. There's probably about, uh, I would say, 10 to 15 countries uh, among the 50 so on the continent that, that are, um, um, that can be thought of as democracies. Um, stable is a big word because, you know, Mali was a stable democracy until there was a coup. Uh, in 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 2013 in 2012, um, but but I think there's about uh, a good dozen countries that are uh, up there performing really well. And then you have uh, you still have some catastrophes, based like Zimbabwe, which uh, which you know even though when Mugabe passed, there was some hope that it would change, but it, it has remained a very very repressive uh, state, really a state captured by a corrupt elite that that helps itself of it and fails to redistribute. Um, and then, you know, Congo, uh, Congo had, had fraudulent elections in, in 2018. And uh, it's, it's like a, it's a, it's a scam, uh, uh, economic scam parading as a country really. And, and, uh, and people really have struggled to try to get any kind of uh, voice and representation. Um, Chad, a very authoritarian regime. Um, there's still, there's still plenty of those. Sudan recently has, uh, has made some significant progress after a lot of street protests and, uh, and, and, and people power. And it's encouraging, but you know, the movie remains really in control of the transition. So we'll see how far that goes. 
Um, South Sudan has been a catastrophe since it became independent in 2011, wracked by civil war. There's still a lot of conflict across across the continent. If you look, you know, there's this conflict in in, uh, in in of course it's Boko Haram in Nigeria, which is which is very big, but also northern Mali, Burkina, uh, Niger. There's conflict in Chad. There's still conflict in South Sudan. There's conflict in eastern Congo. There's still a lot of areas. Ethiopia is is currently. Uh, facing tremendous uh, ethnic uh, violence. Um, so a lot of countries still struggle with um, nation building and with um, being able to, um, to negotiate conflict away from violence, how to, how to bring conflictual perspectives and communities in a society without it slipping into violence, having mechanisms of arbitration uh, there is struggle with that. So when you have governments that are that lack resources and that have weak formal institution, that's one of the costs of that. Is that then it becomes very hard to regulate the normal dimensions of life. Life is full of conflict, and and it's part of the state's job to uh, adjudicate those. And, and many African states are are, are wanting in this respect. Yeah. Pierre, you you wrote an op-ed for New York Times once titled "To Save Africa, Reject Its Nations." Um, I'm hearing some some echoes of that in what you're saying, but tell us what you meant by that. I did not write that title. They write the titles for you. Ah. That was a terrible <laughs> title. Terrible title. I, I wrote back to them and said, what were you thinking? I did not make any argument about saving anybody. And then they, they got the argument flawed because they said rejected nations. And my whole idea was rejected states. And of course, the state and the nation are two very different things. And so there's some yeah. sort of idealized view of the nation state, but that's kind of a, it's like a, a construct, right? Um, yeah. So my argument was that, you know, it, it kind of goes back to some of the, you're right, some of the things we've discussed that um, African elites benefit from the sovereignty of the states. And so when African states receive sovereignty, they really got sovereignty almost automatically by virtue of decolonizing. They didn't have to like earn it, you know, by proving that they existed. The United Nations said, you know, here you go, Upper Volta, you're a state, even though you might not actually be able to enforce your own statehood if you were if you were asked to, but 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 as part of the decolonization process, and it made some sense, right? It was like a protection thing to help these states develop. But but what was well intended uh, led to a system whereby the elites were able to capture the state and did not feel any kind of pressure to be accountable to societies. All they had to do was kind of to play the international game because their recognition, their existence, came from the UN, from New York, if you will, but not from not from the, the countryside in their, in their own uh, countries. Um, and so what I suggested at the time, this is from an earlier uh, work, um, a book that I did in 2009, then I suggested it was kind of, you know, it was um, more mental exercise than a genuine policy recommendation. But I said, what if we just remove sovereignty? What if we say, you know what? We're not giving you sovereignty. You can earn it or you can become effectively sovereign. But but this whole idea of mere recognition, like you know, with a magic wand from the UN, we make you exist. Um, we can we can say overnight that it doesn't happen anymore. And so then I imagine what would what would take place. A lot of people say, oh, but then there would be violence. But I, I said there is already violence, and you assume that Africans cannot take care of themselves. Whenever you say if the Europeans or the West stop recognizing, then it's going to be you know killing each other. And I'm like, I, you know, they were they had structures before the colonizers came. They were able to develop governance. You know, there were significant states, powerful states. You look at the state of Buganda, the Zulu, where there were empires, the Mali Empire, the you know the the Wall of Kingdoms. There were some very significant 
political formations across the continent. And so the, the notion that somehow, um, you know, removing sovereignty would uh, lead to chaos is, is, is questionable. Um, I was criticized for that because a lot of people felt like, you know, it's kind of inimical to Africans. And, and I think it was misunderstood uh, by some, uh, not, not by everybody. But um, essentially what I say is that let's, let's, let's give Africans ownership of their politics. And if they want to, let's say, we, say okay, we, re we remove sovereignty. If the Congolese say, Congo really matters to us, whether you recognize it or not, and we're going to build it and we're going to keep it, and then we're going to make it efficient, and then you can come and recognize it exposed, if you will. If that's what they want, then then let them do that, right? But let's not dictate what the parameters of politics would have to be uh, uh, in a way that leads to elites um, uh, uh, being removed from their people. So sovereignty was given to a state, but not to a people, is kind of my argument. Now, it was a bit of a radical, and I don't believe that we can actually do this, right? I, I don't think that you can stay overnight like that. And then, of course, the Chinese or the Russians would come and say, that's fine, we'll recognize you instead, right? So, but it was, a, it was a thought experiment. I was trying to say, okay, you know, mm -hmm. let's try to understand the damage that it can do, and then we can think of ways of deluding the state that can restore a degree of, um, of political ownership to the people. Yeah. Um, what role is the U.S. playing in Africa today, either or both through governmental action um, or through NGOs? Uh, through NGOs, uh, the U.S. Is, is fairly active. It's probably one of the, the most active external uh, country um, in Africa. Um, and, you know, USAID, the Agency for International Development, is also very active in Africa. And in fact, the, the pushback against AIDS, you know, AIDS was a catastrophe in Africa in the 80s and, and 90s. And it's the United States, the PEPFAR, uh, that started in the Bush, and that, that's carried out by, the, by uh, USAID, that really has made a tremendous difference in reducing uh, the death toll and, and the infections from AIDS. So that's a very significant contribution that the US has done and continues to do uh, to Africa. Um, there are lots of uh, uh, church groups active in Africa, you know, for, for better or for worse, but there's, there's a strong presence from the US. In fact, you know, I think that aside from European countries, the former colonizers, the U.S. is probably still, despite the Chinese push and all that, still the, the most present actor in Africa. Uh, not in the sense of, you know, big contracts like, you know, the Chinese build pretty much every road and every infrastructure. That's not what the U.S. does. Um, but the U.S. has significant soft power and, and strong uh, presence still on the continent. Uh, this current administration has eroded that to a certain extent because there's no strong interest uh, in Africa. Um, and then the fact that they're moving away from a focus on um, counterterrorism uh, has also reduced uh, U.S. Uh, participation to quite a few um, security efforts. Now, that might not be a bad thing because often I think that the, the focus on military containment of some of these security problems prevents us from looking at the, the root cause of, the, of these things. So. Um, right now, the U.S. is really engaged in the continent pretty much as a byproduct of competition with China. And the U.S. goes around telling countries, don't do, don't do business with the Chinese, do business with us, and watch out if you're too nice to the Chinese. And so Africa, just like in the Cold War, is not considered for its own sake, but pretty much as part of a different uh, uh, power game. And it's often the case. Uh, and, you know, to some extent, I'm like, um, I'm thinking... That might be a chance for Africans to seize initiative for themselves 
and uh, and and take the space that is freed up by you know the pullout of of the U.S. For example, the U.S. is removing some troops from East, from West Africa and stuff like that. Well, that's that's not necessarily a bad thing in terms of um, building local capacity. Um, but there's no doubt we're in flux there in terms of U.S. presence. We have a strong historical presence that really boomed under under Bush uh, W and and it was maintained by Obama, and that's kind of uh, fizzling away now. Um, and and it's not clear, uh, of course, you know, we don't know uh, in the U.S. what the transitions will be like, but it's not clear where it's heading. Yeah. So you mentioned China in Africa. What what role is China playing in Africa today and what kind of influence does it have? You know, China plays a huge role, a huge economic role, but doesn't have a lot of influence. Uh, um, the Chinese are not very good at developing what we call soft power, right? Essentially winning the hearts and mind of people. So they, they build roads. I mean, I don't think there's a single road being built over the last 10 years that's not built by the Chinese. Uh, they built uh, ports, railroads, uh, infrastructure, hospitals, and then they mine, right? So they go and then they, um, the, the typical Chinese deal is like, okay, they'll give you like, you know, $5 billion. Uh, they won't give it to you, but they will build stuff for you to the amount of, you know, worth $5 billion in, in terms of roads and infrastructure. In exchange for that, they will, uh, you know, you will grant them access to some mine for the next 30 years, and they'll be able to mine it uh, and get the copper or the whatever it is that they're mining out of there. And a lot of people say it's a form of neocolonialism. I'm, I'm not convinced. Um, I think the Chinese take a lot of risk, right, because they give the money up front. And then they get some sort of 30-year commitment, but good luck enforcing these commitments down the road if there's a change of regime or, you know, property rights are not particularly strong in many African countries. So um, so, so the Chinese are very present materially, economically, and they're starting to build up a little bit of a security presence. They now have a base in Djibouti, first base in Africa, uh, and they start participating more to UN missions. Um, but otherwise, they're not very popular. Although you see them everywhere now, I mean, you, if you could take a flight like an Ethiopian Airlines flight, it's not uncommon that have the plane as as people coming from China. You didn't see that uh, 10, 15 years ago, and at first it was just the countries with mineral resources, and now it's 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 pretty much every country. Um, but then at the same time, a lot of Africans um, resent the fact that they they typically bring their own people to work on their project, and they don't hire a lot of locals. Um, they resent the fact that they are, you know, the Chinese are willing to work with corrupt leaders, and so sometimes if the corrupt leaders are skimming part of the contract, then they work with that so that you know you get roads that are badly built because. 40% of the contract was taken away and, and, and people are frustrated about this, but that, that's what also makes the Chinese quite able to work in an African environment that they are not always uh, uh, too concerned about these dimensions. Uh, and then there's stories across Africa of, uh, of racism in China uh, uh, against Africans, which, uh, which does not predispose Africans uh, uh, necessarily well towards uh, the Chinese. Um, and so, you know, even though the U.S. is struggling in many ways, uh, the U.S. Uh, remains a cultural beacon, uh, a place that appeals uh, much more to, to people in Africa and elsewhere than, than the Chinese model. Although for African governments, the Chinese have been a very good partner to have. Um, I think you told us a little bit about your current research, Pierre, um, but in particular, can you tell us a little bit more um, once it's um, safer to fly, um, once you resume your travels? Um, do you have plans to go back? And if so, where? 
Yeah, so so right now my trip that was going to be to Niger uh, this past last month is scheduled for for December. Since we're going to be done by Thanksgiving, now December is open. Of course, this is all tentative, right? So, but right now we're scheduling for December. I'm arranging everything for then, and then if it has to be pushed back again, it'll be pushed back again. Right? But that's um, that'll be the next trip. I would go uh, um, right after Thanksgiving, and then I would come back a little bit before Christmas, and I would be able to do some work. Then now, the the problem is that they have presidential elections scheduled for December, which is just kind of a it's interesting, of course. But that's not what I'm studying, right? So it can be very disruptive when you're in a country during an electoral period and um, you're trying to interview people and everybody's busy with the election. So I'm interested in being there at the time of the election because any political scientists find that interesting. But, but you know, this is the only time I have. I need to move on with this project, so I'm going anyway. But at least a lot of people will be in town and in the country. A lot of people who are um, good to talk to will be coming back for that. And so, um, so that's my hope, but we'll see. I'm, I, I, it doesn't look like uh, it'll be necessarily that easy to travel by then. And then I'm supposed, I'll go to Congo pretty much whenever I can. Not, um, uh, I don't know when, whenever they, they reopen. I'm, I'm serving on a few PhD committees that have defenses coming up and then I, I wanna go for that. And of course I have colleagues and then we have a book coming out in October, November, and we were planning on doing some sort of uh, um, uh, dissemination event, you know, in, in Lubumbashi. And so that will happen when it can. Um, uh, you know, the good thing about being online is that you don't you don't have to be at home when you teach, right? So on the one hand, we're in lockdown. On the other hand, we are not tethered to any physical location as long as we we can safely or legally travel. So who knows? I might do the spring semester from Lubumbashi and see. <laughs> My wife would be very happy about that. <laughs> Live from Africa. Um, yeah. Right. <laughs> so uh, closer to home. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the uh, African politics lab that you're part of? Yeah, you know, that was, um, that was a great thing that uh, President Oxtoby uh, set up. Um, and so I, over the years, I, I went to uh, different presidents we had and said, you know, we, we really should have something about Africa. We are an elite university and um, there's more than a billion Africans and there's uh, 49 countries and uh, we don't have anything. And I was recruited to teach statistics. It happened that I did Africa, but I was not hired for that. And nobody was doing Africa before. And they're like, yeah, sure. If you want to do that on the side, that's fine. <laughs> and when I go on sabbatical, they replace statistics. They never replace Africa. You know? <laughs> so I said, listen, it's kind of a, a bit of a shame. And also, there's a lot of interest from students. Uh, I always get like 25, 30 students in my African politics class every semester that I do it. And then we have an increased number of uh, study abroad programs in Africa. So I, I suggest on a few occasions that we might want to have more of an institutional existence about Africa or something, you know, some, some programmatic dimension. And so um, David Oxtoby then was sensitive to that and he agreed to fund uh, 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 this Africa initiative from which the African politics lab came. So what I did essentially is, okay, let's, let's create, we don't want to do a center or anything, you know, that's something that's too, too heavy a footprint. Um, and so I called it the Africans, African politics lab. And it's pretty much me and then a bunch of students. And then we organize uh, lectures and events and uh, some programming. And then, and then they participate in the research, right? So there's a programming and a research component. Um, and, uh, I, every year I hire a couple of students in that capacity and then they work with me. Often, you know, when we were live, then they were helping with, with uh, inviting guests and programming things. We usually had five or six guests uh, a year. 
uh, and then they work with me on my research. And you know, many of them have become co-authors of, of, of articles. And so, essentially, it's a little bit of a, and you know, like a, 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 an institutional foundation from where we can I can do my work in ways that has multiplier effects in terms of teaching, in terms of education, in terms of programming on campus and things like that. An important element was that also uh, David Oxlaby had agreed to fund visiting scholars from Africa. And so we were able to host African scholars. Uh, uh, we had one from Ghana. Uh, we had one from uh, the Gambia. Uh, we, had a, we had a couple and came and spent a semester and taught a class and, and, uh, and lived on campus and were able to be members of the community. And it was, I think, very impactful for them. They were junior scholars from Africa and also for the students. Uh, now, the funding for that has ended. Um, so that, that component, I don't know if we'll be able to resume or not. I've tried a few other areas, uh, uh, and, and thanks to the people in uh, and Martina Abert's office, we've been looking at some other grants to, to continue this. Um, things are a little bit on hold, but we are hoping to be able to resume some, some similar thing. But while the African Politics Lab continues, there's, there's still some resources there, and then I still have some student, students working with me, and I'm hoping that we'll be able to, to make it a, a lively part of, of the campus community again once we're all together again. Yeah, it's a great it's a great program. It's one it's it's one of the things I love the most about uh, teaching at Pomona, the uh, the IR program. Um, it's run jointly by by economics, politics, um, history, and increasingly also anthro and and, and social. Um, it's really beautiful multidisciplinary program uh, where students get get training and background in language, but in economics, in, in politics, in, in some areas, some regions. And uh, I think it, um, it embodies the, the liberal arts model in terms of, you know, um, helping them look through different uh, uh, bodies of knowledge to, to, to make sense of things and to, to develop an understanding of, of uh, this complex globalized world. And the, the, the profile of students who get into uh, IR is always so endearing. I think they're very altruistic, they're curious, they're open-minded. They always, um, they make me happy to teach at Pomona. I and mean, it's, not, it's true not just of the IR students, but they are really a fantastic bunch. And, uh, you know, I came to Pomona not thinking that I cared about teaching. My, my love is research. And I'm, at heart, I'm a researcher. And it was the best job that I, the best job offer. I only got two. And of the two, it was the best one. So I'm like, I'll take it. But I, 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 I did not necessarily intend to stay, and I, I couldn't care less at the time about the whole liberal arts thing. So yeah, whatever. <laughs> I say what I had to say in my interview. And then <laughs> but then you know what? It grew, grew on me. Then I, I came here and I realized, my goodness, I love teaching, and the students, um, the students don't always realize how much they bring to us. You know, and it's a little bit like, um, it's a little bit like parenting but not <laughs> the emotional involvement of parenting i have five kids too so i can compare but but there's this mentoring of young people as they grow intellectually as they as they gain the skills to make sense of things and as they project themselves in the future in ways that want to transform the world is so wonderful and empowering for us and it's such a gift to be able to do that and i don't think the students realize how how blessed we are to be with them so I, you know, I came to Pomona not expecting that, and um, I fell in love with it. And the IR program has been the, really the, the core building block in, in that love story for me with teaching. 
So on that note, uh, we're going to have to wrap this up. Um, we've been talking about African politics with Professor Pierre Engelbert. Um, thanks, Pierre. Pierre, where can they where can they find your music? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I'm on Spotify. So the name of my band is called Not a Moment Too Soon because you know I'm no spring chicken. So, um, yeah. I love it. And, and yeah, it's so if you look. <laughs> <laughs> if you look that up, it's on SoundCloud, it's on Spotify, and it's on uh, whatever iTunes. And I released a, a nine-song uh, album back in June, and I'm working on a second one that I should have. You know, it's been great to 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 be kind of stuck here. I'm doing more music than I would. Once the semester starts, it will slow down. But I'm hoping that before Christmas, I'll have a second one. <laughs> well, it's it's not quite professional, so please uh, be forgiving. <laughs> Well, for, for all our listeners, go check it out. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Thank, <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Pierre. And to all who've stuck with us this far, thanks for listening to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. Stay safe and until next time.